do directly correct. People Learn Podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Jordan Hart. There's science. Dropping in science words. Wow, like, you're so smart. Podcast. Cole is very brilliant. Well, Jordan, do you mind if I introduce you real quick? Go for it. So Jordan is former student of Texas A&M University and has um, with a bachelor's and a master's in human resource management. She's currently working at Southwest Airlines in the people analytics space. She's worked for a few other brand name organizations, but she's still pretty junior in her career. And I would say just from knowing her a little bit, she's very punchy and I love it <laughs> and I love her spunk. And so I'm so excited for you to be here, Jordan. So I really appreciate <laughs> you joining us, Jordan. Well, thanks for having me. Well, maybe maybe before we get into some of the more structured parts of this discussion, I don't know, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and 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 just maybe, I don't know if you want to share anything you're working on or any of critical parts of your history or, you know, what, what you love about people analytics, but I think it'd be great for our audience to learn a little bit about you. Yeah, of course. Um, so yes, like you said, I went to Texas A&M, absolutely loved it. Of whoop. course, everyone, yeah, whoop. Everyone calls us a cult for a reason. Um, I actually really wanted to go to the University of Alabama, big college football girl. And my mom was like, okay, cool. You need to stay in Texas. So that killed my dream there. Um, so then it was really UT or A&M. And when I visited A&M, um, I thought it was really cool. The traditions they have, um, especially the ones around um, like silver taps. If a student passes away um, in a month, the next the first Tuesday of the next month, we honor them. Um, and people come to the like center of campus and um, the core band plays silver taps. And it's just a really nice ceremony. And it really lets you know, like you're not just like another number um, at A&M. So I thought that was really special. Um, but yeah, I got my bachelor's in management after a failed attempt of petroleum engineering. Um, realized after a year of that, I was really not good at engineering and should probably explore other avenues anyways what's it the happens. name of my way it, 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 it does happens. it happens to the yeah. best of us um once i was at the business school um kind of found my way over to hr and um going into school to be a petroleum engineer i kind of kept at least with the petroleum side of things and did all of my internships at oil and gas companies um so it was really cool getting to learn the value chain and really still seeing, you know, the petroleum business, but not having to do the engineering uh, part of things. Um, but yeah, once I was in HR, I was like, all right, what, what's like the next up and coming thing in HR? Like, what skill set can I develop that not everyone in HR has that will allow me to continue like growing and challenging myself? And um, for me, that was people analytics already super passionate about the HR side of things. Um, so to be able to add that analytical skill set to my belt was um, what I thought would be the best for my career. And I absolutely love it. Um, have a lot of passion for people analytics. Um, the way I got started, though, my first internship within or my first role within people analytics was my internship at Equinor. And um, in my interview, so this is the summer before I went to grad school, they um, asked why I was going to grad school. And I gave my little spiel about people analytics and how I was super interested in it. And I was excited to get that formal training from um, 
grad school because we had a pretty robust HR analytics uh, course in our first semester. And um, well, whenever I went to my first day of the internship, they were like, all right, your job is to look at our numbers and tell us what it means. I was like, great. I have no idea how to do people analytics. She's like yet. engineering all over. Yeah, exactly. No. Literally, like I, you could not have paid me money um, to predict that I would go into analytics because the first time I heard about analytics, I was like, this sounds like engineering. Like, I need to run far, far away. Um, but I absolutely love it. And I think kind of the reasons I went into engineering and thought I would like it are the reasons I like analytics. Like I absolutely love math. Um, kind of a dream that I get to do calculations every day. It's kind of amazing that, you know, we take 18 year olds and like throw them into a university and make them pay like thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year and say like, okay, what do you want to do the rest of your life? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't know. I don't even know what I want for lunch at this point. Like you, you have such a limited scope of, uh, of possibilities that, you, that you're aware of. We need to, to get into this. that as like a nerdery topic sometimes, Scott, because like I have a lot of thoughts that there's a lot of research on that now too. Is like why, like what are we doing, and how things have changed with the the cost of college over like the last ten or twenty years? It's it's pretty wild. They almost need like like a job rotation, like they have in organizations. Like here are all the different majors. Here yeah. you can like kind of touch on all these sort of things. But I mean, like you had a background in mathematics, or at least a affinity for it, and you found right. a passion that you could apply this that wasn't, you know, I don't know, working for big oil or something. Yeah, yeah. and honestly, I think a lot of or at least a lot of the people analytics um, teams that I've worked on, a lot of them come from like a data background and then are just learning the HR side of things where I came from an HR background um, and was mostly self-taught on the data side of things. Um, of course, I had the more formal like statistical training in college, um, but it's interesting. Ditto, yeah. It's a very Actually, similar story. I find that I really usually get along with people who are more self-taught in this space too. So, and I didn't know that about you, Jordan, but that, that's oh, pretty really? cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was at that internship with Equinor, since I was like, oh God, they gave me the job before I've even learned it. <laughs> I like just ordered a bunch of books on Amazon about people analytics and signed up to learn Tableau that summer and did the UPenn Coursera people analytics course. So like, I mean, they really were, were like, yep this is your job. And I was like, Oh my God, I am not qualified, but I will figure it out. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like, um, the Dr. Tillman sheet strategy. He was one of our prior guests. <laughs> That's kind of what he used to recommend, <laughs> but I, I did want to give Jordan a quick shout out here too, because, uh, I'm personally grateful to her because she's recently joined me as the co-lead of the Dallas Fort Worth people analytics meetup. And so she's been helping out there. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Congratulations. Thank you. When he asked for a new volunteer, I literally stood up immediately. I don't think I even had time to think about it. I was just like, here I am. Let's do this. Yeah, she, she's not kidding either. It was like, you know, like in <laughs> elementary school, there was always that kid in class who was like the know-it-all who like raised their hand first. Oh he was gosh. like, I, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. And it was like, that was Jordan. I was like, all right, let's do this thing. It's, it's been great. Like you're also hitting on like a bunch of things that like you just want in a good uh subordinate or a good coworker, like just someone that will run through a brick wall for you right oh yeah self uh self-taught highly motivated yeah definitely um what they would call a scrapper um 
growing up and stuff was not always the easiest kind of learned from a young age that hard work was important to get where you wanted to go um so yeah and I I'm an Enneagram two wing three and for me what that means is like the twos are the helpers the you you come before I do um kind of people and the threes are the achievers um so like I love to win as much as the next person um but I would never step on someone else to get there I'd help them win with me but I will never like you know betray someone or do something like unethical to get there um so I am very people oriented others oriented makes sense well let me let's let's dig into this for a second so you talked about kind of your motivations and what motivates you like where where are you hoping to go with your career in people analytics yeah definitely um I think my short-term goal so I'll break it into short-term long-term it's really just to continue developing um, as a people analytics practitioner, really learning where my strengths are, where my development opportunities are, and how best to hone those skills. Um, so right now, really focused on being aware that I don't know everything, and I am relatively new to this space, and just being a sponge um, to learn anything and everything in this space. You know, young and hungry want to learn it. Um, but don't always know what the best steps are. So really getting that um, counsel outside of what I think is best for myself and for my career. Um, more longer term, I definitely want to be a leader um, in the people analytics space. Um, people are my passion. Like I said, um, I have a tendency to kind of put others before myself. So I really have a passion for developing others and really seeing them be successful as well. Um, so paired with my passion for people analytics, I think that'd be a really great career path. Um, I think the way y'all could support me more longer term is once I'm, you know, ready for that next step, um, just sharing any opportunities or offering my name, um, should one come up. It also sounds like, uh, you could probably teach Cole and I a lesson or two. I mean, like we get stuck in our own ways and kind of like get our own little echo chambers here, but you're exploring the different areas of people analytics that probably can come to us with uh, what's new and hot, et cetera. Yeah. It's like you said, being a leader in the field, I was like, well, you let me know what it's like when you get there. Cause I, I'm still trying to figure <laughs> that out. <laughs> but you, you also have a background in uh, graphic design and digital illustration, right? Yes. Um, I own an Etsy shop. Oh, um, for, really? Yes. For digital illustration, go by J heart design. Um, I take people's pictures and kind of doodle them into artwork for their homes or for gifts. Like Christmas time, I get like crazy busy. I end up having to take like PTO for my, you know, people analytics jobs because I'm illustrating like from the morning to the night. Um, but it's really fun uh, doing that. And then, yeah, I do graphic design work. Also, I mean, all of that was self-taught as well. Um, I think artistic ability, though, is one of those things you either have or you don't. Um, so luckily, I was blessed with that gift. But, you know, it's something that if you don't use it, um, you know, it's only so helpful. So very well, grateful. Yeah, she, she just redesigned the Meetups logo, and it is fire. It is really good. It was so much was like, better than the thing is, I created. This looks tragic. I need to do this. <laughs> well, I like I mean, to like, look at those um, opportunities for incremental improvement 
Well, speaking Even, of, like, can you critique can. our logo? I would please. love to. <laughs> okay, it's, it's right in front of you right here. I Cole and I have you. had many, many discussions about this. I think we've essentially settled on uh, a compromise between us two. Okay, Ooh, like, I already have an idea. Okay, go. Hit me oh, well, I would have to draw it. I'll send well, you some prototype. Okay. But... Tell me that you really love the light shade of yellow that no one liked, please. <laughs> I it's like a khaki. It's it's off white. It's we, we've that's had, such uh, a generous way of putting it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've had so many discussions about this. Um, like I said, we've essentially what wound up with uh, something we both compromised with. <laughs> but like, like when you when you go into like Blank's uh, context, like you you are taught in grad school, like you run the analyses and write about them, but then you go to the working world and like everything is done in PowerPoint. So like, not only right. do you have to run the analyses, uh, know what they mean, but now you got to be a, a freaking graphic artist and make a compelling PowerPoint, which you know people go to school for this. Like, yeah, you're speaking my language. I absolutely love PowerPoint. I'm a wizard. Um, but you're right. Yeah, I think that's like one of the most underrated skills for um, analysts in any space of analytics is having that ability to be a graphic designer because whether you're good at it or not, you're going to have to do it. You think so? You think people should be taught this or like, is there a better way to do it? I definitely think something I've noticed you know, throughout my different companies is not everyone knows the best practices for data viz. Like there are certain things you can do that make your graphs once like just look a lot better, but two, make it easier for the audience to interpret and understand. Um, so I absolutely do think it adds a lot of value and is an underrated skill. Well, what are some of those elements that people can use to improve their PowerPoints? Yeah, um, things like taking out the grid lines, the axes. You don't need it if you have the data labels. Um, I think there's, you know, a few instances in all everything I'm going to say where there's caveats of like, okay, it would be best mm -hmm. to have it. Um, but yeah, taking out the grid lines, no axes. Um, color is like a big one. You don't, you don't need, it doesn't need to all be the same color. It doesn't need to be gray. Um, but using it in the right way to provide like contrast in some areas, using color to really highlight the points you want to drive um, to the audience. But so I don't know. I can't co color my pie chart accordingly, right? Do not use a pie chart. <laughs> Do not use a pie chart for the what last. About, why not God. use a pie chart? Why, what about three D pie it? charts? Oh God. Is it because people get too hungry for pie when they look at the chart? Is that why? <laughs> yeah, but you know. Then they start thinking about the holidays. They stop showing up for work because they think they're on PTO. Wow, you just linked uh, data viz to like uh, the Great Resignation, essentially, right? Oh goodness, dis disengagement Hot topic, right? <laughs> the quiet these quitting. Are, these are the guests you only get on Directionally Correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do have a broad question for you, Jordan. Kind of in the vein of of just trying to showcase your skill set here. If you and I have a feeling it's probably going to come up in the data visualization space per what you're saying. But if you had a magic wand and could solve any people analytics problem, 
what would it be? And then, you know, maybe how would you do that? Yeah. Um, honestly, I feel like if there was one problem I could solve, I, I don't know that this is like as deep or as big as maybe someone else's answer would be for this, but I think it's finding that uh, perfect balance between self-service metrics and drawing out the insights and kind of spoon feeding your audience. Um, you know, whenever you're having to do the entire thing from pulling the data to the presentation, um, you know, it it gets a little overwhelming. You're over capacity. You can't do some of those, you know, cooler analyses or, um, you know, take on more projects whenever you're having to constantly do that. So I think really figuring out what the right balance is with self-service metrics um, would be incredible. Maybe that's low-hanging fruit. If I knew how I would do it, um, I probably wouldn't be saying this was the problem I'd like to solve. Um, but yeah, definitely open to any advice, recommendations I'll have on that. Well, can I ask a question about it, Jordan? And, and I, think, I actually think you were there. We had one of those coffee chats the other day where I mentioned this. I always try to like throw out something slightly controversial and see what people say about it. <laughs> but I had this notion that I don't think there's such thing as a self-service dashboard that you just push out to people. Like, I think that it, there's only demand driven dashboards, like where people are like demanding the data and then you're able to give them a mechanism to get that data. But right. I don't believe in, in self-service dashboards. So what, what do you think about that? And how does that relate to what you were saying a second ago? And feel free yeah. to torch me. I don't mind. No, you're good. I was there at that coffee chat. So definitely remember this um, controversial opinion. Um, I guess really where I was coming from is more so like leaders, HR business partners being able to go um, pull simple stuff. Like, you know, they're not constantly bothering you for like, okay, what's the turnover numbers for this one really specific group within this large business unit. Um, so like, well, I the only one I have experience with, so I will say is busier, like them being able to go in and just pull like a simple chart up is amazing and was definitely helpful um, during my time at McKesson. But in terms of dashboards in general, I mean, I spoke to this previously, but when I was at Toyota, we had the attrition rates and trends dashboard. And before we even pushed it out, I had to set up eight training sessions with literal like live demonstrations in it oh with three like thought out scenarios to walk the HR business partners through. So these were hour long sessions where I was like getting all the HR business partners on the call, doing a live demo um, for this dashboard doing scenarios where I'm like, okay, if this problem arises, this is what you're going to filter for. This is the tab you'll go to. This is where you get it. Um, this is how you clear your filters. Um, just kind of letting them know and ask questions I think was really helpful. Um, but it was a lot of work to get every single HR business partner up to speed on one dashboard before we even implemented it. Um, but it definitely helped. And I know some people will say, even if I did that, they're going to come back and ask a lot of questions. Honestly, they they didn't really. I think I had like one or two people where I had to be like, hey, remember it's in here. If you need something further, let me know. Um, but I think I got a lot less questions than I thought I would. 
you know, that, that's a fantastic win. Essentially, like that's the metadata that lets you know that the training worked, but the dashboard itself should be intuitive on its own, uh, right? Just someone should be able to look at it and uh, use it right away, uh, even right. for a complex dashboard. Uh, but Cole, Cole, what do you mean by like, no dashboards are truly self-service? Oh, it's, it's just meant to be controversial. It's just, I think I've seen so many dashboards or reports in my career that are meant it, it like the goal wasn't to please the customer of, of like, hey, here's the data you need. The goal was just to take the work off of the analyst and to make the work yeah. put on somebody else's plate. So it's like diffusion <laughs> of work or decentralization of work. And it's like, well, that's not a good reason to create a self-service dashboard. Your reason should be to give people the data they need when they need it in a simple way. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, anyway. do you guys want to pivot to something a little bit different? Let's do something different and fun, Scott. Let's do it. Different and fun. I mean, we often do different, but we don't often do fun. So I like well, that Well, then idea. let's have a little fun. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're going to hit you with uh, five rapid fire questions related Sounds to uh, which is better. And you just give like gut instinct and or if you want to provide a little explanation, whatever. It, it's fun. Do whatever the hell you want to do. Okay. Oh. You ready? Yeah. Okay, Python or R? Yeah, um, I'm not a coder. Not not the code gal. Not the girl on the back end. Okay. I do I do write a mean formula, but I am not the one coding. So I'll change this to um, Tableau versus Power BI since I do specialize more on the Viz side. There you and go. And I'm gonna have to go with Tableau. Really? I, is this, it, is this easier a, to learn? What, what's what's well, going on? You know, I was self-taught on both, and I, I would say, uh, well, I did take a course for Tableau, so I guess that, that can't technically be self-taught. Um, Tableau is just a lot more intuitive. Granted, there's some things in it that are not intuitive at all. Um, Power BI, you know, I love the Microsoft suite, like love PowerPoint, love Excel, love Excel so much. Anyways. Power BI just doesn't do it for me. It's not as easy to use. I think it integrates better with Microsoft products. So, I mean, that can be a win. And if a company already has the Microsoft suite, like they're going to have Power BI. So I know that's why some companies choose to do that. But I think Tableau is way better. I think it looks better. And I think it's easier to implement. So Python versus R, you're taking Tableau. I love it. Okay, introversion yep. versus extroversion. <laughs> extroversion oh and okay I'm definitely biased here i'm super extroverted like on the berkman i got 99 percent out of 100 percent extroversion <laughs> and then like they it was like me to others was 99 percent, and others to me was like 98 percent is what i needed granted i think the pandemic changed that for me i'm much more introverted now which You're is probably like 20 percent even with that score, you're going to be leading all the people analytics because like, you got a bunch of people that just like can't talk in people analytics. Okay, uh, qualitative versus quantitative analyses. Oh, quantitative. Quant. Okay. Love quant. Qualitative is important, but I love quantitative. <laughs> soft skills versus hard skills. Ooh, honestly, like gonna have to go with soft skills on this one. I think the hard skills are um, they're trainable, teachable. You can develop them. Soft skills are like a little more like innate. Um, and then people analytics, you know, you got to be able to communicate um, your findings, 
build rapport so that they trust you, um, influence your decision makers, things like that. I think soft skills will definitely get you further. Yeah, and I think during, uh, if we talk about like future of work, I think a lot of those hard skills are going to be, essentially AI is going to take them over right. where those soft skills are going to really be uh, necessary. Okay, final one, applied versus academic research. I would just like to say this is like the most IO psych question ever. Uh, anyways, like I would expect nothing less of you two, um, but I would go with applied. Um, theories are nice when you need to break new ground. Um, recommendations are also good, not great, good, but you got to have the, that solution. So I'm going to have to go with applied. Yeah, this is this is a Cole special right here. <laughs> from the brain I'd of Cole himself. I'd love to hear your intake. <laughs> well, I know we came up with these questions together, Scott, but I actually don't know what your answers are. Do you want to go through it yourself too? Uh, Yeah, I can run through them quickly. Uh, okay, Python versus R. I'm an R guy, trying to be a Python guy eventually. Uh, introversion. I'm a quant guy, but I love qualitative data. Oh my god, it's so cool. Uh, soft skills versus hard skills. I aspire for soft skills, and uh, definitely applied research. Way more fun than academic research. Yeah, yeah, I think. What about you, Cole? I won't. I won't leave you out of the out of this uh, melee. Well, I mean, obviously R. Uh, I'm going to say ambivert um, because I think being able to play in both is probably the ideal. Um, I know that it's not really a cop-out because it's actually a real category. Um, I just uh, I think that if you're too far on the poles and one or the other, you know, if you're a Jordan Hartley, it, you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're <laughs> but I, I don't know who's the other end of the pole, but I guess it's probably most people analytics practitioners are pretty introverted, so. Um, you know, finding that middle zone is probably good. Uh, I would say qualitative for sure. I'm a big fan of things like manager quality indexes and quality of hire and any type of thing that's quantitatively qualifying the the aspect of the work is is definitely something for me. Hard skills and then applied research through and through. Um, I don't think there's any other way of doing it. But um I don't know, Scott, are you ready to uh, go into the nerdery, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's hop into the nerdery. Uh, so I've got something for y'all. It's uh, the case of robots in surgeon. Surgery, rather. So, Cole, like some time ago, you, you talked about the Flynn effect, and we were seeing yeah. like a gradual rise in intelligence over time, but it's not necessarily related to uh, a overall increase in intelligence. It's just really that bottom of the distribution rising, right? Yep. So good, we're seeing... good, good callback. That was like episode three, I think. That was a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. We're now now we're talking referring to like long time ago, like three months ago, which is incredible yeah. in itself. But we're we're seeing the exact same thing in uh, robots assisting surgeon. So these these surgeons are using. Uh, these like essentially robotic hand pieces and like little cameras they can go inside a patient and they can be much more precise and like have incisions that are much smaller. And when they are used by surgeons overall, we see an increase in their uh, ability to uh, make successful surgeries, a reduction in hospital stays, et cetera. But the population that they help the most is those weakest surgeons, the, the surgeons with the least skills. But the funny thing is, 
these surgeons are also the ones least likely to use this technology. So the ones that need it the most are least likely to use it. That is so interesting. And I think about this in the context of the future of work, because uh, a lot of the future of work seems to stem around the relationship between like human and machine augmentation. Mm-hmm. And this, and, and well, a lot of times I think the hypothesis is, you know, this, the sum is going to be greater than the whole of its parts or however you say that expression. So if you get a human and a machine operating together, it's going to be way better. But this seems to kind of fly in the face of that. I don't know. What, what do you think about that, Scott? Well, I, I mean, you can lead a horse to water, but uh, you can't make it drink. It's like a cliche expression, clearly. Um, but it, it's also kind of like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, these surgeons may think that they are better than they are or be novices. We know that novices tend to be the worst performing to create the most accidents. Um, That's I mean, honestly, like that's kind of what I was thinking too. Um, the horse to water thing. It's like they're already the lo- like poorly performing surgeons. They probably know there's things they could do to become a better surgeon. They're already not doing it. Um, so to add something that would make them more effective, like they're probably not going to utilize that resource. They're not utilizing, you know, any of the ones available already. It's also amazing, like this this uh, robot assistant uh, has no impact on a highly skilled surgeon, but it does close the gap for those low skilled by 50%, yet <laughs> still not using this technology. Well, this is what tells me it's not, the evolution isn't complete, because a lot of times you see that with technology, like in the beginning, the, the technology is worse than any human being. And then, and then like with, with like chess and AI, it's only the masters of the world that can beat the AI. And then now AI like cleans up on any chess champion. I imagine eventually even the most skilled surgeons are going to be considered worse than this type of tool. But I don't know, that's just a, a projection into the future. Well, maybe, maybe we pivot a little bit here because and I think Jordan would be great to weigh in on this, Scott, because we came across this article called Overcooling of offices reveals gender inequity and thermal comfort. And I was thinking like, wow, this is tale as old as time. <laughs> and, and basically, I don't know, Scott, do you want to go into kind of what they found here? Uh, so overall, uh, offices are being overly cooled. So like people are just like discomfort, uh, thermally discomfortable. And it really affects women more so than men. Uh, do you find this to be the case? You go in the office, Jordan, and uh, it's just freezing in there? Yes. And <laughs> all... Like, Validated. This. Oh, my gosh. Seriously. And uh, all my female coworkers, at least, you know, the ones I see often, all have, like, jackets in their cubes. Or I hear them being like, dude, I'm so cold today. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I've known many, many women that have, like, their jackets. They come in, like, uh, like Mr. Rogers. First thing they do in the morning is put the little sweater on, et cetera, sit down at the desk. Also, I mean, this is just speaking from, like, research I've done on it, but, like, thyroid issues um, tend to impact women more than men. And um, some of the symptoms of both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism is your body's ability to regulate temperature. I can't remember which is which, but one makes you 
feel way colder than it is and one makes you feel hotter than it is um so yeah wild well let's get kind of unscientific here for a second and just like jordan what would be your ideal office temperature and like is it like 75 is it like 72 like what oh my god 75 is so hot yeah probably mm, maybe like 70 or like a few degrees below i don't know i feel like 67 is too cold 70 is fine 73 is pushing it um i mean this has implications for return to office as well like it's an element that people haven't really been talking about but it has evidently existed for quite some time like people don't want to come to the office because they have you know kids they hate the commute or like you come to the office and no one's there but to also be uncomfortable while you're there like hell no i'm just gonna go home and like i can make it 75 if i want to i can make it 65 if i want to that was literally my thought too. Like people already don't want to go in. <laughs> Come on. Now you make it miserable too. Uh, this article also goes on to essentially uh, link this to lower performance for women because, like, you know, if you're uncomfortable, of course, you, it's going to affect your performance. Like, I think we, we all kind of basic understanding of that. It also goes into this uh, element of like this may become a greater concern as uh, you know we have like uh, global climate change, et cetera, and like we. we essentially expand into areas that are more heat extreme. And this is also a bigger problem in the summertime. So there's overcooling of the office in the summertime. Yeah, I remember that. Like, it's been a while, but I always thought, like, it was only in the summertime that I had to bring a jacket into Mm -hmm. work because Mm -hmm. it would be more cool. But the other thing I was thinking about is I always get feedback from our international listeners that we have, like, a bias towards, like, american terminology and we're just saying yeah it's gonna be 75 in the office and you're like wow 75 celsius <laughs> that must be really really hot what is that like 22 celsius boy my conversion is we're just gonna sound really dumb if we yeah. start trying to convert it <laughs> I, I i know that my hotel rooms in europe i think it was like 22 is hot i <laughs> i don't have a good gauge of what that is conversion wise yeah, let's do that real quick we can do it 22 Celsius is at 72 degrees. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the universal number should be about 72 ish, you know, plus or minus one. If you're getting, if you're getting to 75, it's too hot. If you're given, getting to like 70 or below, it's probably too cold. Is there, is there a way for organizations to mitigate this? Like, so we're we're trying to get people back to the office and like, you know, there's all these reasons not to come. And then you add on, it's too hot and it's like should there be like a personalization like okay this is the hot cold this is the cold zone and may- maybe people will like self-sort like by genders just based on this perceptions of the temperature i don't know i just think like what about the ona and the serendipitous interaction impacts if they did self-sort like yeah. i know we've talked about that a bunch on the podcast sorry i lost um hearing for a second we were we were talking about you all good um i i I recently uh i talked to someone that is trying to uh foment a uh, tipping point to get people back in the office at my company and you know they're they're doing a great job they 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 provide these like kind of like cool like spaces for people to work and you know like a self-seating areas and you know you just kind of like uh go wherever you want like trying to make it as collaborative as possible but my suggestion was like what if you had an area where there were no lights on 
because it is so bright. Like if I could just turn the lights on, pardon me, off and work that way, it'd be beautiful. But the lights are so bright in the room. I hate it. Well, and we're on video right now. So the listeners can't see this, but my office is pretty dark. That's been the greatest thing since the pandemic. I haven't turned on a light in the office other than my computer screen in the window for two, two and a half years now. Totally. It's amazing. Overhead lights are so harsh. <laughs> We've gone from like the temperature all the way to lighting. But Jordan, what, what else do you hate about the office? Let's get, let's get it <laughs> out there. Uh, so to be honest, I, I thought I was going to hate having to go back a little bit more than I do. Um, I'm hybrid right now, so I go in two days a week, um, sometimes more, of course. Um, granted, I will say I work on a team with really great coworkers. There's probably like 17 of us, and I absolutely adore them. Um, so that's really engaging. It makes me want to go in. I think the thing I, I would, I guess, hate about going in is like I have to get ready. And like being a girl like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm biased, but my own routine. It, I mean, it's a minimum. Uh, I, I, you, I don't know if you mind me saying, but you were for Southwest Airlines, which is like renowned for their great culture and great people. Is highly coveted jobs. I Ellipsis. love the culture. Honestly, a really good example is Monday's Halloween, and Southwest Airlines goes hard for Halloween. Oh yeah. Halloween. So Halloween without the E's because our airline code is WNCO. Um. So yeah, it's awesome. We dress up. Our executives dress up. We have trick or treating, departmental skits. It's just like a whole fun day. That is that so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I, some... I actually have to go into the office here soon to um, decorate. <laughs> well, we've only got one more nerdy topic to cover, and then you can head back to the office. But, um, <laughs> well, Scott, let, let's talk about this humans versus computers in lie detection, which I thought was a pretty interesting article. So the, the, the synopsis of it is humans are bad at detecting liars. They're right about 53% of the time. And, and you would think if you were guessing, it should be like a coin flip. So about 50% of the time you should be right. Whereas machine learning was a little bit better. It's about 60 to 80% accurate. But the funny finding from this was that in the case of combining human judgment and machines, it actually backfires because the people incorrectly overrule the computer and it actually <laughs> makes people worse. This is so fantastic on a lot of levels. Like, we, 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 from like just an IO perspective, we, we know that human judgment is worse than mechanical judgment. And this is just like a uh, uh, re verification of the stat that, you know, we have this sort of hubris about us that we're not going to have any biases, et cetera. Um, <laughs> yet we overrule the, the smarter party here. The thing I think about when it comes, like I'm, I'm really intrigued. I'm not as intrigued as I used to be. Like in, when in graduate school, I thought this was such an interesting topic of like trying to detect lies with some, some sort of imaging. And the thing I think about is like, why, why aren't humans better at detecting when somebody is lying? Like, it just seems like you would, like, as a skill, this should be something that's a learned skill. But I, I guess if I'm really thinking about it critically, 
it's probably because you don't get a feedback loop to create. Like you don't actually know when your prediction is correct, if someone's lying or not, like you don't get that. So you don't really get a training set much like a machine learning model would. That's, that's a wild thought there. Like you're, you're right from like an evolutionary perspective, like it would benefit you to be like really good at understanding the line of others. Plus we evolved in social networks where, you know, some people defect and some people uh, are telling the truth, et cetera. But this article does have a list of the sort of things that can uh, help people predict whether someone's lying. But once again, people are not very good at it. So you want me to hit you with some of the better ones? Dude, hit us with it. Okay, so the best one overall is if the, what, not Confederate, the, the altar has a high-pitched voice. That that barely worked. Correlation, 0.21. Uh, fidgeting, 0.16. That's associated with lying My as well. ADD does not like that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, if you square that, you're talking about, like, what, 4% odds there? Uh, if you use, like, a lot of hand movements, et cetera, there's essentially no relationship there. But other things that have no relationship is hesitation, uh, errors in speech, Fast speed rate, uh, latency period. What would that be? Like a long pause, I guess. Yeah, I feel like all of these are just describing bad public speaking practices. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if you're a bad public speaker, you're probably a liar. Yeah, these are these are sort of things like people use. Oh yeah, to, is that uh, scientifically directionally correct? That's directionally <laughs> correct, baby. You're getting it, Jordan. You're finally getting it. <laughs> I mean, I love this uh, topic, and honestly, like, it's not just lying. Like, humans think we're better at predicting a lot of things, like going with just our gut instinct, but we're really biased. Like, I don't know if y'all read Talking um, to Strangers or not, but it talks about, like, harsher punishment, I believe, or, like, wrongful convictions, and they use, like, a machine to determine, like, convictions and compare it to, like, what a judge would rule. Um, but just in general, like whether we want to admit it or not, or even when we try to be aware of it, like we're biased. Well, we, we've referenced Thinking Fast and Slow, which is Daniel Kahneman's book, which is what that Adam Grant book is kind of based off of on the podcast before. But one, one of the things I think about is even if humans are only 53% accurate, are there like a subset of humans? that are always wrong at guessing and a subset who are like always right thinking about like the tales of the distribution, you know, like, are there like people that are really, really good at detecting <laughs> liars and then people that, you know, you could sell anything to cause they can never detect a liar. Okay. I, I got something. You gotta, you gotta hear me out though. So Jordan is a fantastic artist. He's a graphic illustrator, fantastic eye for uh, beauty and art, et cetera. She has great taste. Uh, you, when, when someone has like a lot bunch of wrong opinions about art, you say they have no taste. But if they had no taste, they'd be right fifty percent of the time, right? No, they just have bad taste. So they'd be on that Dude. other end of the distribution. Yeah, that exactly. was a big build up to a joke. It, it was it was terrible. There. It was terrible. We're gonna cut all this shit out. It don't matter. <laughs> We're leaving this in for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that worked at all. Yeah. But well, I, I, for I for one, welcome the robot overlords. I mean, it, it's it's all meant to like take some decisions off our plate. However, yeah. whether you're a surgeon or you're trying to detect lies, 
it just seems that humans are pretty weak at a lot of stuff. I, I wonder, like, is there anything, at least from what you've seen, Scott, that you're like, man, humans are just killing it here. We're really good. And, you know, machi- oh, wow. the robot overlords are never going to take us there. Empathy. I don't know. I think you I don't can know program about a that. machine to be nicer than me. <laughs> man, I don't know. That's a wild question. Where do humans excel, like, overall? Like, I assume you mean, like, given 20 years of AI technology, where will computers never outreach humans? I mean, the things that I've heard is, like, it's like the simple stuff of, like, being able to pick something up off the shelf (laughs) is surprisingly hard for, like, machines and AI to do for some reason, but, like, the things that we think of is really hard, like making music or writing novels are actually pretty easy to emulate. I don't know. Maybe sarcasm. That, that's going to be one that computers going to have a hard time dealing with. I think you could even get formulaic in that sense. I think so. Right? I mean, most of sarcasm is just saying the opposite of what you mean. So it's like, just put a minus sign on everything. That lead to a lot of like wrong decisions on the other end, though, right? When you're being serious, well, you'd need like a sarcasm decoder algorithm as well. You need to get on that, Jordan. It's, so when you, when you go in, decorate, <laughs> develop the sarco- sarcasm decoder. Oh yeah. So I have a question for you guys. Uh oh. It's something right, I'm not very, this. I'm not like very knowledgeable on. So, um anything kind of goes here but what do y'all think about like the four-day work week and do you think that will ever pick up in the u.s i'll let you go first scott um we've brought this up on the podcast before like there's been all sorts of talk around bringing people back to the office and like how how this is going to unfold in the future but there's a lot of realms that we haven't really explored in that great of depth, like be it the 40 work week, like a 35 hour work week, this sort of thing. Um, I am in favor of it. Cause I mean, like, if you think about your, like your weekend, Friday, you're still recovering Saturday, you get the day off, but you just came off of a work day and Sunday you're right back into like scary <laughs> Sunday scaries, right? Sunday scaries. Uh, I, I'm in favor of trying out a variety of things and doing a bunch of A-B testing. Uh, it, it's going to be difficult in, in an organization setting to like kind of have these sort of edicts. Right. Uh, but you know, I think there, there, I think there's about, a world of possibilities out there for us. Yeah. I don't know. I like the, the days of the week, work week, is, is like a figment of the Industrial Revolution. Right. And when I think about that, I think about standardizing work. So, um, and really, especially for knowledge workers, it seems that work is becoming less and less standardized over time, not more. Mm-hmm. And therefore, even if you went to a four day work week or a one day work week for that matter, you'd still be getting emails in the middle of the night. You'd still be having to respond to Slack messages. Like people would still be sending you stuff. And so, especially with the advent of, you know, the smartphone and how that impacts, um, you know, everybody's just attention spans and all that. To me, it seems like work, and especially during the pandemic, this really hit home, is like work is like 24-7. And yeah. so, like, I, I find it much more, like, even if I moved to a four-day work week right now, I'd still be working probably seven days a week. 
And that's just the nature of the beast now. So do you think that's because of demand of work or lack of boundaries around work? I think it's the lack of me playing golf enough. I find like (laughs) golf is the one place I'm able to center myself. Work is your escape. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I do think you're hitting on like some like an unintended consequence of the pandemic. Like everyone went uh work from home and like Jordan, you mentioned like you don't have to get ready in the morning, but without that time uh either getting ready in the morning or your commute home, it gets filled with work. You know, now now you're yeah. checking emails, etc. I, I will say if I were to switch to a four-day work week, give me Wednesday off. Like Monday, <laughs> Tuesday on, That's Thursday, so Friday on. <laughs> Oh, can I riff on this, please, Scott? Please. please? I, I've, been, I've been saying this for years. If you have one day a week to take a holiday, take Wednesday. Yeah. And no one does it. It makes two two-day weeks. It's yes. the best week ever. I learned this a few years ago, and I'm like, Wednesday is the best day. Oh, my gosh. It's like, turn hump day into a holiday? Oh, <laughs> you're good. You get two Fridays? Okay. Perfect. I love this. It's like a life hack that nobody talks about. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a good place to wrap us up today. Um, well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. And I, I really appreciate you being, you know, brave and joining us on the silliest people in Alex podcast <laughs> out there. But uh, I don't know. Um, any, any final words from you, Scott, before we let Jordan sign us off? Jordan, it was a super pleasure meeting you. We will link up your uh, Etsy page, and oh, thank uh, you. we 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 can't wait to see photos of uh, your Halloween party. Oh yes, I'll definitely post them. My um, cube right now is very spooky. Oh yeah, skulls and pumpkins, real cute. Well, that's amazing. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott, Jordan Hartley. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.